0: It's been said, a duel is a war of two. In colonial days, a duel was a way of settling disputes. Duels were fought with pistols. Two men would walk off ten paces. They would turn and face each other. Then they would fire on command. The man left standing won the duel. In 1777, Button Gwinnett, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and the namesake for our own county, was killed in a duel that he had with a political opponent, Button Gwinnett, believe it or not. Even Abraham Lincoln, while an Illinois legislator, had scheduled a duel with a political rival. Both men were talked out of it at the last minute. But it got me thinking, how much more fun would politics be today (laughs) if we still had duels? (laughs) I mean, rather than debates, let's just have a duel. Wouldn't that be great? Well, in tonight's chapters, rather than dueling politicians, we have dueling prophets. Jeremiah was sent by God with a message, but there was a false prophet, a man named Hananiah, who met him in the temple to contradict him. Clear the streets, board up the windows, get the kids inside. Tonight, we got to shoot out in the temple. Well, chapter 7 begins a little bit before that. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying... Now, verse 1 in the newer translations, the New American Standard, the NIV, they read, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. And since the bulk of chapter 27 deals with King Zedekiah, the final king of Judah, it could be that that's the accurate reading. But it's also possible that this prophecy came to Jeremiah in the reign of Jehoiakim, and it just wasn't delivered until the days of Zedekiah. Either way, it doesn't change the message. We're told, Thus says the Lord to me Make for yourselves bonds and yokes, and put them on your neck, and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon. By the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Now apparently, Jeremiah was sent to a summit of foreign dignitaries. Diplomats from various neighboring nations. Ambassadors had come from Edom, from Moab, from Ammon, from Tyre, from Sidon. All of Judah's adjacent neighbors. They were in Jerusalem to work on a strategy to revolt against the Babylonians. Now imagine, this official meeting, it's in progress, when suddenly Jeremiah busts through the doors. He comes walking in wearing a wooden harness around his neck. It's a yoke, the kind of yoke that an oxen would wear to plow a field. And he's warning these nations that Babylon is going to rule over them. There's no escaping it. And it's best that they surrender and submit to its yoke. This was a dramatic picture. Everyone would have recognized that the harness spoke of total domination. You know, oriental yokes, they were heavy. They were cumbersome. They prevented the animal from even lifting its neck. What a contrast. When Jesus told his disciples... Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Babylon is going to be a tough taskmaster, whereas Jesus rules and steers us gently, and he always does so in love. Hey, if the burden you're carrying tonight is heavy and burdensome and cumbersome, it's not the burden Jesus gave you. His yoke is easy. In his burdens light. Well, the Lord said to Jeremiah, And command to say to their masters, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, and in, in other words, the kings that you've come to represent, Go back to them and say, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, By my great power and by my outstretched arm, And have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. In essence, God sat down and He drew up a map of the world according to His own discretion. And He carved out the nations and their sovereignty. They were all forged, not by the counsels of man, not by the power and wisdom of man, but by the Lord. The Lord sets up kings and takes down kings. He says, and now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field, I have also given him to serve him. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is behind this Babylonian surge. And Nebuchadnezzar's rise to power. He even calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Now Nebuchadnezzar was an interesting historical character. He was perhaps the most absolute despot the world has ever seen. His reign extended, as we're told here, even to the beasts of the field. And he had an ego to match that kind of authority. He was a proud man. And yet here God referred to him as my servant. For God had a plan to humble this man Nebuchadnezzar. You first see God's plan unfolding as Nebuchadnezzar witnessed the God of Israel defending Daniel's obedience. You remember in Daniel chapter 1. And then the faith of Daniel's three friends there when they refused to bow to the idol. The king looked into the furnace after throwing the three guys into it, and he saw a fourth man likened to the Son of God. God was speaking in numerous ways to Nebuchadnezzar, and yet this king still didn't take God's message to heart. It still didn't humble him. Reminds me of the lion. He's walking through the forest. He's asking all the other animals, Who is the king of the jungle? The rabbit says, Oh, you are mighty lion. The deer says, Of course you are, mighty lion." Finally, the lion, he comes to the elephant and he says, Who is the king of the jungle? The huge elephant picks up the lion in his trunk, whirls him over his head, and then slams him to the ground. The lion picks himself up, dusts himself off, and he says, Look, you don't have to get mad just because you don't know the answer to the question. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar, just like the lion, just didn't get it. Not until God teaches him a lesson. You see, at the pinnacle of this man's power... God humbled the emperor. He was strolling one day along the palace porch, admiring his great empire. When we're told in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, the king spoke, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Look at this city. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, To you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you and they shall drive you from men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses that very hour. The word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. The clinical name for this type of insanity is lycanthropy. Lycanthropy. At one time, Nebuchadnezzar ruled over every beast. Because of his pride, he became a beast. God drove him mad. Tradition tells us that it was Daniel who took care of the king during his madness. We know that when God restored Nebuchadnezzar, and he did restore him to his right ma- mind, he was a new man. In fact, read Daniel chapter 4 when you get home tonight. The king testifies of his newfound faith. God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar, and in my opinion, he became a believer. I think we'll see him in heaven. Here in verse 7, God reveals to Jeremiah the extent of Nebuchadnezzar's dynasty. He says, All nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes and then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. And of course, this is what history proved before Babylon fell in 536 B.C. Both Nebuchadnezzar's son and A man named Evil Merodach and his grandson Belshazzar would rule over his empire. Verse 8 continues to describe the extent of Nebuchadnezzar's dominion. And it shall be that the nation and kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, and the pestilence until I have consumed them By his hand. Therefore do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon. Now remember, as Jeremiah says that, he's wearing a yoke around his neck. For they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. But the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him... I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it and dwell in it. So to submit to the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, was the equivalent of obeying the will of God. Again, Jeremiah is speaking to a summon of foreign leaders from nations all over the world. And he basically tells them, here's your choice. Surrender to Babylon and live or rebel and be crushed. And here's the odd thing. By this point, Babylon had already invaded Judah twice, in 605 and in 597 B.C. Jeremiah's message here wasn't anything that they hadn't already heard. In fact, he was echoing what was obvious. The Jews had passed the point of no return. Their judgment was inevitable. And every nation needs to know there is a point of no return. And yet they continued to hold on to the hope that God would deliver them. And Jeremiah is saying, your hope is in vain. And those who say otherwise are liars. In fact, there was a secular source, the Babylonian Chronicles, that tells us at this very time, Nebuchadnezzar was having trouble putting down a small uprising on his eastern frontier. It was a minor revolt that would soon be squashed, but there were false prophets among the Jews in Babylon who were pointing to this situation as evidence that Nebuchadnezzar would soon be toppled and that God would deliver Judah. In other words, they were sensationalizing events to promote their own agenda. Wow. Self-proclaimed prophets promote sensationalizing the headlines in order to use it for their advantage. Have we seen this in our day? Happens all the time, doesn't it? Send us money so that we can sound the alarm. Even in Jeremiah's day, God's people had itching ears. Tell us only what we want to hear, is what they said. Paul wrote to Timothy, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. People today want God to pat them on the back. They want Him to tell tell them everything's okay. They don't want to repent. They don't want to hear God's calls for repentance. To turn from their sin, to turn back to Him. They just want God to pat them on the back. Well, verse 12 I also spoke to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him and his people, and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon. Now he's spoken to all the surrounding nations, now he's talking to Judah and Zedekiah. Therefore, do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, says the Lord, yet they prophesy a lie in my name, that I may drive you out, and that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. Also, I spoke to the priests and to all this people, saying, Thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. Now during the two times that Nebuchadnezzar had invaded Jerusalem, he had taken back to Babylon the temple treasures, the golden vessels that had been dedicated to God that were in the temple. He had seized them as plunder, as tribute. And I think we all should realize that if we don't obey God in our lives, we stand to lose some of the treasures that God intended to adorn our temple. You know, the New Testament teaches that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God has adorned the temple with talents and with spiritual gifts and with insights and with a personality. And yet all those gifts can be squandered if we turn our backs on God and if we don't obey Him and if we don't trust Him. Well, verse 17 tells us, Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city be laid waste? But if they are prophets and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts, that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and at Jerusalem, do not go to Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the carts, And concerning the remainder of the vessels that remain in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take, when he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Apparently Nebuchadnezzar had taken to Babylon the golden vessels, but had left behind the bronze. Verse 21 Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon. Jeremiah predicts that eventually all of the sacred vessels in the temple will be taken to Babylon. And there they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. And yet a day will come when these temple treasures will be restored. And that is exactly what occurs in the book of Ezra. Again, the scriptures are fulfilled. For after, the, after Cyrus the Persian overthrows the Babylonians, he issues a decree for the Jews to return to Judah. And he also says that all of the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple should be given back to the Jews to be returned to their land. In fact, Ezra chapter 1 actually provides an inventory of those vessels. What a lesson for us too. For even if we do lose some of the treasures that God intended for us to possess, His grace can restore them. He can get them back in His time, in His way, if we'll realign our lives with Him and trust Him. Well, it's Jeremiah's message here in chapter 27 that sets up for the dual... The showdown in chapter 28. And it happened in the same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and of all the people, saying... And Jeremiah is careful... To date, his confrontation here with Hananiah, it was in the fifth month, or Ab on the Hebrew calendar, which would be the equivalent of our July-August. The date was 593 B.C. This Hananiah, he stands up and he declares, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon, Within two full years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. In two years, all the temple treasures will be restored and returned. Not what Jeremiah had said. Hananiah claims to be speaking for God, but we're going to learn very shortly that he wasn't, he was speaking lies. Hey, mark this down. Not everyone who claims to speak for God really does. Verse 4. And I will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah who went to Babylon, says the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Jeconiah was the king that Nebuchadnezzar had taken to Babylon in 597 B.C., and now Hananiah says that he will return. Again, this is directly opposed to what Jeremiah had already predicted. Well, then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people who stood in the house of the Lord. It's a big deal. Big audience is observing this. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. The Lord do so. The Lord perform your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all who are carried away captive from Babylon to this place. And if you read a little sarcasm in Jeremiah's voice, you would be right. He's mocking Hananiah. He's saying, well, I wish you were correct. Nothing would make me happier for these things to be true, but you're wrong. Nevertheless, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who have been before me and before you of old prophesied against many countries and great kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. In other words, Hananiah was not just disagreeing with Jeremiah, but with a long line of the prophets, Isaiah Micah, Joel, and others had all said that judgment was coming upon Judah. What Jeremiah was saying was nothing new. It had been confirmed by men of God who had gone before him. This is a line of reasoning that we can appeal to whenever we confront a cultist. When a Jehovah's Witness or when a Mormon attacks the deity of Jesus, say... We're arguing an issue that's already been settled by smarter men, by more godly men than us. In 325 A.D., the wise and faithful leaders at the Council of Nicaea, they branded Arius and his followers, those who were denying the deity of Jesus, espousing the same doctrines. They branded them as heretics. We need to know that the doctrines we stand on are not Johnny-come-lately teachings. Our understanding of the scripture, Orthodox Christianity has been hammered out by thousands of years of scrutiny. You see, it's not just blasphemous, but it's arrogant to throw out 2,000 years of church history because you hear an interpretation that's more pleasant or that's easier to digest or that doesn't offend you. Jeremiah is saying, wait a minute, the things I'm saying, I'm just affirming what many, many prophets have said before. Verse 9. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Notice, here's the ultimate test of a prophet. Deuteronomy 18 verse 21 tells us that you identify a false prophet by the fact that his prophecy fails. He says something that doesn't come to pass. He's a false prophet. It's always just a matter of time before you find if he's genuine or if he's bogus. Best way to test a prophecy is give it time. Jeremiah says, well, let's just wait and see who's the false prophet. And then verse 10, this Hananiah, he grows bold. He becomes daring. Then Hananiah the prophet, he took the yoke off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and he broke it. He gets physical. He walks up to Jeremiah, strips him of this wooden yoke, and he smashes it to pieces. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. Now remember, this was all done in the temple. Right in front of the priests. And the scripture says, all of the people of Judah... It was a big crowd. And here this Hananiah, he upstages the prophet Jeremiah. He shows him up in front of this big crowd. Jeremiah gets challenged and he just walks away. Let me make a couple observations. First, the false prophet is usually a good showman. He has to be. He lacks authority in what he says, and so he tries to make up for it by how he says it. This is why he's loud and bombastic and demonstrative. His great showmanship makes up for his lack of substance. And then second, notice Jeremiah's response. I got to tell you, if it were me, I would have kind of fought him over the yoke. I wouldn't have just given it up. And even if he had smashed it to pieces, I would have taken one of the pieces and plobbered him over the head with it. (laughs) Nobody's going to turn me into a laughing stock. And yet this duel has an anticlimactic ending. Jeremiah, he just walks off. Yet here the prophet is teaching us a vital lesson. God doesn't need us to defend him. Did you know that? God's a big boy. He can defend himself. God hasn't called us to win his arguments for him. He simply calls us to speak his truth. To give a defense of the faith that's in us. The pressure to persuade is not on me. Once I declare what God gives me to say, then it's up to God's spirit to win the hearts of the people that I've addressed. I can walk away confidently... Confident of what I've said and of God's ability to verify his own truth. You know, here we might be tempted to accuse Jeremiah of cowardice. Why didn't he stay? Why didn't he fight? But perhaps Jeremiah shows more faith by walking away. He knew that truth was on his side. He knew that God's truth would prevail. He waited in faith. I think Jeremiah must have realized that God's goal is not to win the argument as much as it is to win the hearts of people. God's goal is not so much to win the argument. You know, I've found that you can win an argument. You can ram the truth down somebody's throat. You can render them speechless, and you can end up losing the person as a consequence. Jeremiah didn't want this encounter to turn ugly. He didn't want to get into a brawl with Hananiah. Had he argued with Hananiah... It might have legitimized his lies. Whereas just walking off confidently was probably the most convicting tact that Jeremiah could have taken. It was evidence that truth was on his side. Verse 12. Now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, You have broken the yokes of wood, that you have made in their place yokes of iron. At the time of the duel, Jeremiah had no rebuttal. God didn't tell him to say anything else, and so he walked off. But now a word of rebuke is given to Jeremiah for Hananiah. He had broken a wooden yoke, but he's going to be chained to a yoke of iron. He's going to be taken. He's going to be enslaved with an unbreakable yoke. In the end, the yoke's on him. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations, that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and they shall serve him. I have given him the beasts of the field also. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust in a lie. Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. Oh boy, Jeremiah, that's some pretty courageous stuff. How's that for a definite rebuke? Hananiah predicted that in two years the Jews would return to Babylon. Jeremiah counters him. You'll be dead within the year. Verse 17. Verse 17. So Hananiah the prophet died the same year in the seventh month. Just two months later, you're dead. And it's interesting. The seventh month on the Jewish calendar is the month of Tishra. It's the festival month. Feast of trumpets, feast of tabernacles, the day of atonement, all fall within that month. Three feasts occur in one month. All the males in Judah would be required to come up to the temple during this time. That means that the whole nation would learn of Hananiah's demise. Through its timing, God turned this man's death into a national spectacle. If it happened earlier, fewer people would have known. God wanted to make sure everybody knew that this was a false prophet. Chapter 29 begins. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, incidentally her name was Nehushta, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, And and by the way, one of them was a man named Ezekiel. We're going to study his prophecy after Jeremiah. The craftsmen and the smiths, maybe the Joneses too for all I know, had departed from Jerusalem. And so Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, he had reigned three months before he was carted off by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. His deportation, along with these others, occurred in 597 B.C., And it was to these exiles, these Jews, now living in Babylon, that Jeremiah sends this letter. He writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. Verse 3. This letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. This implied that they were going to be there for a while. This business of coming back in two years, this was nonsense. Despite what the false prophets had said, they weren't coming home in two years It was going to be seven decades they were going to live in Babylon. Many of them were going to die in Babylon. He writes, take wives. and You're going to be there a while. Find your wife. Beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands. So that they may bear sons and daughters. That you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. In other words, rather than long for home. Rather than just sulk there in Babylon. You should embrace your life there in this pagan place. Start marrying. Start a family. Be good citizens. Seek the welfare of this pagan nation, for as Babel prospers, so will the Jews who live there. So much of the Jewish identity had been tied to their land and to their temple. In Babel now, they were without both. And so the question was how would the Jews and their Jewishness survive living in a foreign land? Jeremiah had a strategy. Simply stated, he says, settle in. Go ahead and settle in. Rather than wait for the day when you're going to return to Judah, you need to make Babylon your home. Make a life there. Build a house. Plant a garden. Start a family. They're not to take over the government, but they're to pray for their pagan leaders so that they can live in peace. History proved that this was a successful strategy. The Jews prospered in Babylon. They flourished there. They not only survived, they thrived. Many of the Jews rose to positions of prominence. You'll recall the names Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah. During the exile, away from their temple, the Jews in Babylon developed a meeting. They called it a synagogue. The word meeting or synagogue. It was a community center there in Babylon where Jews would meet together and they would worship Yahweh and they would teach the Torah and they kept their Jewishness alive. And this is the same strategy that has kept Judaism alive for the last 2,000 years. For after 70 AD and the Roman conquest of Judah, the Jews were driven into all the world. They again became strangers in a strange land. And they continued to follow Jeremiah's ancient strategy. As they did, they prospered. They flourished. They took jobs. They made business. Often they became so prosperous that their Gentile neighbors became jealous and made them objects of scorn. And this is not only the strategy that Jeremiah gave to the Jews in Babylon, friends. This is the approach that Jesus instructed his disciples to take In living in a fallen world. For we too find ourselves in the same situation as the Jews in Babylon. We're strangers in a strange land. We're exiles in a pagan world waiting on heaven. Waiting to go home. But how can we survive? How can our Jesusness survive? Well the Lord tells us in Luke chapter 19 verse 13. He says... Occupy till I come. In other words, settle in. Don't just wait on heaven. Get involved in this world. Make your world a better place. Build a life. Start a business. Get involved in the community. Make it a better place. Get married. Have some kids. We even have a synagogue of sorts, do we not? The church is an outpost of heaven here on earth. It's a Christian community center where we worship Jesus and teach God's word and keep our faith alive. And our job, it's not to take over the government, but it's to be good citizens. It's to pray for our leaders so that what? So that we can live in peace and practice our faith freely and openly. As Paul told Timothy, to pray for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Like the Jews in Babylon, Jesus' instructions for his followers was to become part of the pagan society and influence it person by person from the inside out. Yes, Jesus is returning. He could come for us any day now. But we're not supposed to move to a mountaintop somewhere with guns and food rations and all. And sit on the mountaintop and wait on him. That's not the strategy he he tells us. He says, occupy till I come. Another way of saying it, be in the world, but not of the world. It's been said, live as if the Lord is returning tomorrow, but plan as if he's not coming back for a thousand years. It's good wisdom. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets And your diviners who are in your midst deceive you. Nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. You know, the Jews in Babylon, they were keeping their bags packed. As if God were going to come and deliver them any day now. Jeremiah says, wait a minute, don't believe these lies. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon... I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. And it was exactly 70 years after the first deportation of Jews to Babylon that Persia conquered the city and the first thing Cyrus did was allow the exiled Jews to return home. And thus Jeremiah writes to them in verse 11. And this is a popular verse. This is probably... There's people here that this is your favorite verse in all of the Bible. Have no doubt about it. It's on plaques. You got all over your house. You got t shirts with this on it. You may even have a tattoo with this verse Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. Famous verse. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. But when you see that verse, remember its context. This was a promise to the exiled Jews living in Babylon being punished for their sins. Even while serving their sentence, God isn't angry toward them. He's not being vindictive. He takes no pleasure in their pain. His thoughts toward them are of peace and not evil to give them a future. And a hope. Isn't that wonderful? This was God's word to his people in their darkest hour. In the aftermath of their greatest failure, God had brought Abraham out of the land of idols to his, a new land, a promised land. Now his descendants have failed and trusted other gods and have returned to the land of idols. But even after such a colossal failure, there is still hope. In fact, even after the fall of Jerusalem, Jeremiah is going to say to God, of God, in Lamentations chapter 3, Great is your faithfulness. He still had hope. He still had trust in God. The false prophets were prophesying a false hope, but God's hope was real. Our God, the God of Israel, is the God of second chances. And no matter how bad things get, don't count God out. He cares. He loves you. His thoughts towards you are not of evil, but they're of peace, they're of a future, they're of hope. God redeems and restores. And then verse 12, he says, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And this too is such an encouraging verse. You see, Jews were taught that they needed to come to the temple to worship. That the temple was the one place on earth where God could be found. But now the Jews in Babylon, they are far in proximity from their temple. 800 miles. Yet even in this pagan land, if they seek the Lord with all their heart, He can be found. What an encouraging verse. My grandkids are two and three years old, and they haven't yet grasped the fine art of playing hide and seek. They don't give the hiding part much of an effort. It's not their favorite aspect of the game, quite frankly. Their joy is being found. And this is true of God. God's a horrible hider. He loves to be found. He doesn't like the shadows. He loves to reveal. He enjoys being found. All He asks of us is to seek Him with all our heart. A.W. Tozer once wrote, it's not that we don't want God. We do. We just want other things more. And this is why just seeking God half-heartedly is not enough. We need to pursue him with passion, with effort, with our whole heart. I love what Elizabeth Barrett Browning once wrote. Earth is crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees take all, takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pick blackberries. In other words, it's not that God doesn't want to be found. He reveals Himself in every common bush. But are we seeking Him? Verse 14. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Because you have said, The Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David, concerning all the people who dwell in this city, and concerning your brethren who have not gone out with you into captivity. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will send on them the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and will make them like rotten figs that cannot be eaten They are so bad. Remember the prophecy in chapter 24, the good figs and the bad figs. Those who surrendered to Babylon were the good figs. Those who listened to the false prophets and refused were the bad figs. He says, and I will pursue them with a sword, with famine and with pestilence. And I will deliver them to trouble among the kingdoms of the earth. To be a curse, an astonishment, a hissing, a reproach among the nations where I have driven them. Because they have not heeded my word, says the Lord which I sent to them by my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them. Neither would you heed, says the Lord. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you of the captivity whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah. This is not King Zedekiah, but a false prophet by the same name who prophesy a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall slay them before your eyes. Jeremiah mentions two of the false prophets from Babylon, who are living in Babylon, whom God and Nebuchadnezzar are going to make examples. They're going to be slain. Their false prophecies will be silenced. He says, and because of them, a curse shall be taken up by all the captivity of Judah who are in Babylon saying. Notice this will become a common curse. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab. And the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. The king is going to punish these bogus prophets who spoke against him. And who encouraged the people to rebel against Babylon. And this makes for a great Bible trivia question. If you're ever in a Bible trivia game, name the five men that Nebuchadnezzar threw into the fiery furnace. Well, they're going to get three real easy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But Zedekiah and Ahab probably is going to stumble. They too are going to be roasted in the fire. And we're told why Zedekiah and Ahab met such a fiery fate. Verse 23. Because they have done disgraceful things in Israel, have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and have spoken lying words in my name, which I have not commanded them. Indeed, I know and am a witness, says the Lord. Now you shall also speak, and he mentions another false prophet. You shall also speak to Shemaiah, the Nehalamite, Saying. And here is another false prophet. The Nehelimite means dreamer. This was Shemaiah the dreamer. You remember back in chapter 23, Jeremiah spoke of false prophets who were appealing to dreams and to visions to support their false messages? Jeremiah said, Wait a minute. The dreams compared to the Word of God are like chaff to the wheat. Trust in the wheat, trust in the word, not in somebody's wild dreams. Shimeiah was one of the chief culprits. He was Shimeiah the dreamer. And this Shimeiah sends a letter. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, You have sent letters in your name to all the people who are at Jerusalem, to Zephaniah the son of Messiah the priest, and to all the priests, saying, The Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada the priest so that there should be officers in the house of the Lord over every man who is demented and considers himself a prophet, that you should put him in prison and in the stocks. This dreamer writes, ordering the replacement of the high priest Jehoiada with his own cohort, Zephaniah. He rebukes the priest for not arresting those who disagreed with his false deliverance, his false promises, namely Jeremiah. In fact, he writes, Now therefore, why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who makes himself a prophet to you? For he has sent to us in Babylon, saying, This captivity is long. Build houses and dwell in them, and plant gardens and eat their fruit. Here's another duel. We got dueling letters. Jeremiah sends the letter to Babylon, and now this guy in Babylon, he sends a letter back to to, uh, Jerusalem. Shimei, the dreamer, he wants to appoint from Babylon a high priest in Jerusalem who's going to be sympathetic to his false prophecies. He even wants Jeremiah thrown in the stocks. Notice that. Why does he throw him in the stocks? The word stocks, it literally means neck irons. He wants a ball and chain attached to Jeremiah's neck. Thankfully, his plan fails. Verse 29. Now Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. That must have been an awkward moment. How do you think Jeremiah reacted? Well, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Send to all those in captivity saying, We're going to write another letter now. Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah the Nahilamite, Because Shemaiah has prophesied to you and I have not sent him. He has caused you to trust in a lie. God says, I didn't send this guy. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah, the Nahelamite and his family. He shall not have anyone to dwell among this people, nor shall he see the good that I will do for my people, says the Lord, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord. Because he misled God's people The dreamer's life is going to end in a nightmare.